Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome back to the Muslim Matters Podcast, where we discuss everything under the sun that affects Muslims, such as faith, local and global politics, social media, sex education, civil rights, and family matters, all coming from a traditional Orthodox perspective. Subscribe to our podcast and follow us online on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram on our handle, Muslim Matters. And check out our site daily at muslimmatters.org. Assalamu alaikum. This is Irtaza Hassan. Welcome to Muslim Matters Podcast, Man to Man, where we bring guests to speak about different topics impacting our deen, our families, and communities. And we benefit from the experiences and stories of Muslim men, fathers, husbands, brothers, sons, uncles, and friends. Today, me and Sister Zainab bint Yunus have a special guest, Abdullah Al-Halak. He is a student of knowledge and a student of hadith. He's a Hadith enthusiast. He is married and living in Canton, Michigan. His father was an imam at the masjid at MCA in Ann Arbor. And Abdullah has several works he's working on that that I'm going to get to. Our topic today is going to be around enthusiasm, studying Hadith, excitement and passion for Hadith, and how Abdullah kind of went on this journey where he himself is a student of Hadith and kind of developing himself as kind of a specialist of Hadith who enjoys writing about it, who enjoys studying. And and this is somebody who, you know, grew up in the West. He he grew up essentially, a lot of our listeners are in the U.S. and Canada. Obviously, we have listeners worldwide. But this is a topic um, we're going to get into. Before we, we jump into that topic, I want to welcome Abdullah. Abdullah, welcome to the show today. Assalamu alaikum and uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, Abdullah, before we get into the show, before me and um, Sister Zainab start, you know, asking you questions, having a discussion with you, I wanted to say um, you have a couple of projects that you've, uh, some things you've done and some things you're doing. You translated Mullah Alikari's 40 Hadith, and also very soon you're going to be teaching Hadith courses through the Zidni Institute. That's Z-I-D-N-I, Zidni Institute. And I was looking a little bit at the Institute's website, some amazing uh, teachers, some I know personally, some I only know uh, through social media or following them online. They have uh, Nabil Nisar Sheikh from Umul Qura. They have uh, Tahir Wyatt, of course, from Medina University. They have Sheikh Ahmed Khatir. I believe he's, uh, you know, the main guy over there. Tell us a little bit about Zidni Institute and what you're going to be teaching specifically. Sure. So, um, uh, I am going to be teaching uh, a couple courses, inshallah, for Zidni. Uh, officially, we've uh, announced only one, which is an introduction to Hadith, <clears throat> where um, we're going to go over this poem called Ilham al-Murith. And uh, it's it's just a very basic introduction. If you know nothing about Hadith, um, <clears throat> it'll take you from that uh, first level and it'll familiarize yourself um, and the listener with uh, a lot of good information, and it'll allow them to go to uh, a higher level, uh, maybe intermediate level, um, to study something like Nukhbat um, al You mentioned, I mean, Zidni, they have this uh, program they're working on. They're working on a, a, a two-year program where they're going to have courses on multiple topics. Um, you have Sheikh Joe Bradford teaching, uh, Sheikh Tahar Wyatt, Sheikh Ahmed Khatir, uh, Sheikh Nabil Nassar, they're going to have courses on Aqidah, Fiqh, Usul Fiqh, Hadith, uh, Tafsir. So uh, I'm really excited about the opportunity. 
Um, and uh, inshallah, it's going to be starting after after Ramadan. Assalamu alaikum. So I'm just going to come in and ask you the very first question before this for people who have no idea what you're talking about. What is Zidni? So uh, Zidni uh, is uh, an institute. Uh, it's based in California. Um, and uh, they have they have been teaching uh, different courses. They teach live in the Masajid uh, as well. But now they're developing this new um, online portal um, that has a two-year program. It's called the Tasil wa Taqrib, I believe. Um, and they try to make uh, traditional uh, texts that are taught in Arabic on the different sciences available for people in English. So the, uh, the language of instruction will be English. All right, that's really interesting to know. So, listeners, keep your eyes out for that if that's something you're interested in. And this is going to be available online, right? Uh, correct. Yes. Awesome. Mashallah. No, that's that's really good to hear. Mashallah, Abdullah. Before we get into the show, I know me and Sister Zainab have several several questions, and I think it's going to be a really fun discussion today. I wanted to ask you something. I was actually talking to Sister Zainab and, and Siraj uh, from you know us on the Muslim Matters podcast team before this show. And I was really excited about having you on. I, I did meet you recently, a little bit before COVID. I think one of our uh, students of knowledge from Houston was was getting married in the Michigan area, and we had we had run into each other. But what was I was really happy to know, and and I'm and, and I'm not saying this to make it awkward or, or uncomfortable for you in terms of a praise, but and I'm going to date myself a little bit here. When I was in college, um, your father, Sheikh Motaz Al Halak, who still for folks listening, you can find stuff on YouTube. You can find lectures online. Uh, he he was a regular speaker in Houston, Texas, in Dallas, in, in the Texas area. Uh, and I remember our local sheikh, Sheikh Walid Basuni, your father, and Dr. Muhammad Jabali. These were kind of the some of the pioneer um, hadith enthusiasts, as, as you say, and hadith specialists. And I remember particularly your father in a lot of the conferences would wind up having topics around sunnah, around hadith, around preservation of hadith, around, you know, authority of the sunnah, authenticity of the sunnah, etc. And and I found it remarkable that, you know, 20, 25 years later, I'm meeting you and you wound up essentially uh, following that sort of path or those sort of footsteps. I wanted to ask you right off the bat, did your father kind of push you in it? I mean, you know, you'll find sometimes a father who's a engineer or a physician, they, they push their kids, hey, you know, would you think about following this path? It, what, what, clearly, your father must have influenced you, but what, was there some sort of push? And and how do you feel about that? Doing something that your father did for so many years, and Mashal probably still doing. Uh, I wanted you to comment on that. Sure. So, um, uh, my father, I, I wouldn't say he pushed me, um, because I think my um, so I, I I was I was homeschooled as a as a kid, by the way. Just putting that out there, um, and, and my mom uh, would do the homeschooling with us. So um, uh, my interest in hadith came from a couple things. Um, you know those Bilal Phillips books, the 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 those those textbooks he has like different levels. You're aware of those? Yeah, like Islamic Studies One, Islamic Studies Two. Yes. Yeah, I, th I think I'm, I'm guessing we're all probably familiar. Yep. Oh yeah, yeah. I grew up on those too. Yeah, so yeah. that's that was our like Islamic studies, I think, staple. So um, uh, that's where I first like, 
I think kind of like really learned, uh, understood that there is this concept of of hadith and the concept of there's compilers of hadith. And uh, I, I like the idea, nothing ever, never meant anything to me though. And then one time I'm, I'm in my dad's library and it's in the summer and I, uh, this is in the summer of 2012. And he, I stumble upon this little booklet by Sheikh Al-Albani, rahimahullah, called Khutbat Al-Haja, where he uh, does a, a research and analysis on the authenticity of the ahadith about the Khutbat Al-Haja that, that everyone knows that people start their khutbah with on, on Friday. Um, and I, my Arabic was very weak at the time. But I understood enough of it where he was saying something like, this is a chain. This, this chain, its transmitters are reliable, but it's not authentic. Because so-and-so didn't meet so-and-so. And I was, I was, I was amazed. And I, I was like, hmm, was, didn't Sheikh al-Bani die in like 1998? How does he, how does he know this type of thing? So um, then I went, I was, I, w- I wanted to know more about it, <clears throat> not because I even wanted to study it, just, it was like a kind of like a, just seeking an answer type of thing. So then I went to my dad and I asked my dad to give me some resources and my dad gave me some English resources because like I said, my Arabic wasn't good. Um, my mother's American, by the way. So um, uh, our, our, our. The, the, the language in our household was English. Um, so my dad sent me two books. <clears throat> uh, one book was Introduction to the Science of Hadith by Dr. Suhaib Hassan, which was published by Dada Salam, I believe. Um, it's, it's, it's been out there for decades. And the second one was a book that was trans- translated online. I don't think it was ever published in English like at a proper publishing house, but... A PDF of it was available online, which is the history of hadith compilation by Dr. Suhaib Hassan's father, Abdul Ghaffar Hassan, who was also a scholar of hadith. And um, <clears throat> during COVID, I had the chance to have a, uh, a, uh, like a WhatsApp call with Dr. Suhaib Hassan. And uh, I expressed to him, you know, my gratitude uh, for his book and how that was the first thing uh, I read on it. So, uh, yeah, so that's how my dad helped me in that. And <clears throat> whenever I would have questions, you know, uh, at the beginning, I would, I would go to my dad. Um, my dad, you know, is, is a Hadith guy in terms of, you know, you know, had, you know understanding the importance and, and, and preaching the importance of Hadith. So uh, Hadith as a, as a thing, as a concept, has a, uh, has a, has a level of respect if you will. No, that's that's amazing. I, I wanted to ask a question, and this is actually going to break into a little discussion format. This is really, Abdullah, I'd like for you and, and Sister Zainab also to comment on this. So here in, in the Western context, we it's not rare, alhamdulillah, in the West to find madrasas, you know, schools that teach hif, that start kids from, you know, tajweed to reading, memorizing, and you know, maybe they'll even teach your basic tafsirs and they'll, they'll get you good exposure to the Quran. And you see it in the big cities. You Now there's so many online platforms and tools where kids in the West essentially have, alhamdulillah, pretty 
easy access to Quran, I would say, or, or it is, you know, if someone's seeking it and wants that investment, inshallah, they, they can find that. But Hadith studies and, and Hadith platforms still seem to be pretty rare. And I'm guessing this is also true in the Eastern world, in the, in the, in the Muslim countries. I, I wanted to ask uh, really both of you, how do we get younger people that may be listening or their parents may be listening how do you get younger people to get that same um, exposure to Hadith so they can develop that love and interest? And I'm, I'm not just talking about Hadith at a superficial level, but I'm talking about, you know, interest in the sciences, interest in how Hadith are graded, maybe the commentaries, not not just at a superficial level. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering what, what either of you may think about that. I actually want to ask Abdullah this too, because I'm not somebody who is unfamiliar with Hadith. I do come from a religious household, alhamdulillah. Um, but an interest in hadith was never a huge thing for me either. I don't think it is for a lot of people, even if you are um, raised within a religious practicing home, but especially if you're not, there's just an idea that there's a hadith out there, and a lot of people don't know the difference between what's the difference between an authentic hadith and what's not an authentic hadith, right? Um, So yeah, I would pose the same question to Abdullah as well. Like, What got you personally into it, and how do you think that can be transmitted or replicated um what can muslim parents do to get their kids really grounded in hadith and have a love for it i think it's a great question um and the i i think there's a lot of problems which have led to a lack of hadith appreciation number one i think a lot of you know a lot of the educators themselves their their own grasp of hadith um, many times is not sophisticated, and, and there's this there's a difference between having a good understanding of of hadith and have a sophisticated understanding of it, and being a hadith scholar. I mean, no one's asking for educators to be hadith scholars, but at least to have something more than a superficial understanding, right? Of you know how hadith got to us, why it got to us, why was it important, and so I think it really depends on, on the, the child's level. But Hadith appreciation needs to take shape in, number one, understanding the process of Hadith. Hadith were transmitted from person to person. They were written down by scribes. These scribes, scribes used materials that they had to write them down. Uh, different types of pens and papers and, and you know, writing utensils. Um, hadiths themselves, they're valuable. How, how do these hadith affect our lives? How do they provide benefit for us? Um, what did the hadith mean for the person transmitting it? Right? Um, lots of times that's something we don't even think about. Yeah, like, actually, I was just thinking about the emotional connection that not just the Sahaba, obviously, but all those who narrated a hadith, the emotional connection that they had to those narrations, even if it was something as mundane, um, or as we would think of it as mundane, as, you know, Rasulullah lay down on his right side, right? Or he used to say, this is dhikr at this point in time, or he used to do that. And we really do miss that sense of emotional connection to what the hadith were, what they uh, what they symbolize, that connection, that relationship to Rasulullah I don't think that even factors in for most of us. Yeah, yeah. 
And so, like, people lose out on that. You know, Ibn Umar, he took Nafi' to show him where the Prophet used to make Atikaf. Ka'b ibn Ujrah, he meets a Tabi'i, I believe, and he says him, he says to the Tabi'i, uh, should I not give you a gift? And the Tabi'i says, sure. And Ka'b ibn Ujrah then transmits a hadith for him. It, it, I mean, it shows you like there, there's a level of excitement that they had towards it and they, they really valued what they have. Um, and I think part of this, you know, to circle back is understanding that hadith is at the most basic level. Hadith is the shared memory of the prophet. Right. And as a result of it being the shared memory of the prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, anyone who has that shared memory can partake in it. There's no monopoly on it, which is why it's people like me, you, and whoever that participated in the collection and compilation of hadith. You know, sometimes we do an injustice to the scholars of hadith by saying, oh my God, they had... Um, you know, uh, photographic memory and things like this. You're doing injustice to the scholar who, whose, whose connection to hadith is not facilitated nor spawned by his photographic memory, but from a genuine connection he had with the Prophet and with the Sahaba and with wanting to, be, to take part in something that his forefathers took, uh, took part in, like, like al-Bukhari. Um, he grew up not knowing his father, but he knew that his father met Malik ibn Anas, you know, and he shook hands with Abdullah ibn Mubarak. And he had the um, the, the books of Sufyan authority in his library. Al-Bukhari grew up knowing that and feeling the importance of these books based on a father he never met. So Hadith as a familial endeavor, that's what you're getting at essentially it is it, it and, it's, and it's very personal it's very it's very real there's 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 real emotions in it and 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 you see the sadness of certain scholars of hadith you see their happiness you see uh the the, the spiritual struggles that they go through I, I genuinely believe that the field of hadith as a field is I mean, the most real example of, yani, you know, what it means to be a human and involving yourself in an endeavor, right? But uh, Abdullah, I think some of this was 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 really well said, and as, as Sister Zainab just said, a familial endeavor. You know, we had Sahaba come from all walks of life. You had Sahaba that were born into Islam and, and grew up as they were children around the Prophet Sallallahu and then you had you had older converts who essentially were, you know, adults or, or later in life. It's a good segue into another question. And I think you and, and Sister Zainab were both touching this, but, you know, when we have young Muslims today uh, who, who are still young, maybe they're children, maybe they're uh, even pre-puberty, and then you have adults or, or maybe even converts who accept Islam later, uh, how do we get them in touch with, with Hadith? And I think you know, you touched upon that there are a lot of basic literature in English. There there might be some stuff online. But I think sometimes Hadith still is not, is not as seemingly relevant to people. 
until they get to know more about it. Like sometimes you'll tell people about that certain components, even of the prayer, you know, they might not be found in the Quran, but you really have those details in the Hadith or in the, in the Sunnah. So let me ask you that. Um, how would you get younger Muslims or people newer to the deen or converts? How would you get people, or even born Muslims for that matter, how would you get people a little more uh, attached and involved with Hadith today? Um, for them to take part in the process, which means workshops, which means crafts. I mean, depending on how young, how old they are, Hadith is really, really fun. Um, for, for kids that are young, uh, I mean, you can have them write out hadith using like, um, you know, traditional materials that might have been available back then. So it can be, you know, like kind of like craftsy. Um, you can um, have people participate in it. Right. So you have like like, you know, this this mock hadith session where, um, you, you know, one person plays, you know, a muhadith. And another person plays a, you know, some, you know, transmitter of hadith and the muhadith is, is given a script. The, the, the transmitter of hadith is given a script and they go back and forth, you know, and um, they kind of understand the process and the questions that hadith scholars would ask of people. They would interview people and things like that. Um, uh, opening actual books and showing them how it's done. Right. Understanding and taking part in the process. Um, how, how do I know this Abu Alsam in the chain is Abu Alsam and Nabil and not, you know, someone else? Right. Um, really, I think we need to get people um, involved and take part in the process. One of the reasons why there is this disconnect. Um, and even it, it leads even into a technical sense, even for someone who is a, a student of knowledge, if there's a disconnect from the process, it actually affects how they understand and value hadith. And, and, and this is, you know, you, you know, not even me saying it, but that would be, you know, kind, you know, kind of makes a similar point. And he was talking about why people like Al-Bukhari, Abu Dawood, and Imam Ahmed were so great. And he, he said two things. He said, And this is in his book, Al-Muqibah. So what matters, he said that they actually were came in contact with the written you know, notebooks and notes of these scholars of hadith. They they could go into a town, you know, look up, you know, the grandson of Al-Layth ibn Sa'ad. And find his grandfather's notes in his house, right? And, and that means something, right? It has a it has a, a, a critical value for hadith when determining authenticity. You know, if we move past the strict academic value, it, it has a value of connecting people to it because it's no longer a theoretical thing, but something you're involved in. I think it goes back to the bit about hadith as both a familial endeavor and then the really beautiful way that you phrase it, hadith as the shared memory of Rasulullah because that's not a concept that people really consider, right? It's just like, oh yeah, these things that tell us whatever, right? But bringing in that emotional component, I think, is probably one of the most fundamental principles to start with if we want to get Muslim families immersed into a love of hadith and an understanding of the process. And that can begin with 
pointing out how so many ahadith are Rasulullah sallallahu speaking to a child, right? To his stepson. Uh, and then there's so many other narrations where you know Rasulullah said something and the Sahabi that narrates this hadith narrates it to their son or their daughter or their aunt or their niece or their nephew and it is literally a chain of family members uh, that passes this on and it does as you said it is a familial endeavor and it is a shared memory of Rasulullah that is imbued with this love for him. And that's where it really begins, I think. If we start telling these stories and obviously as parents, educating ourselves about the history and the background and the process of hadith and then replicating that to a certain extent within our own home. So we learn a, a simple hadith and we teach our children. We say, you know, Rasulullah was so excited when he told uh, this child this thing or this sahabi was so excited when they told their child what Rasulullah said or did. And we create that sense of personal emotional connection right there in our homes. And that's how you start off with that building block of understanding the process and becoming a part of the process. Definitely, yeah. I mean, like one of the... Uh... One of the, the brothers, uh, from Australia, he saw my advice about uh, he was starting a hadith circle at his masjid. And one of the things I, I, I told him, I said, so in hadith, there's one of the things that is studied in the books of, of, of the science is hadith acquisition. If you're a student, how do you acquire this hadith from someone else? What's what? There's like five valid ways you can do it. And I told him, I said, when you're teaching this hadith circle or leading this hadith circle, why don't you give everyone a chance to practice this? So one day you literally narrate it for them slowly and have them write the hadith as you say it, right? And and that's now, they've now participated in the process. Another day, why don't you write the hadith down for them and then, you know, hand each of them a copy, right? And that's like, you know, munawada or whatever, you know? Uh, So... There's so there's so many ideas. They just need implementation. Um, I I don't think I've spoken to anyone, and they thought hadith was boring. The only time I've seen someone think that hadith is boring or didn't find have a connection to it is when they 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 learned about hadith from someone who is genuinely uninspired about it. Which is, you know, n- not a fault of the kids, or, or not not a fault of the person that's listening, whether they're whether they're a kid or not. No, I, I appreciate that. Fully agree that uh, as hadith is made to feel relevant for people, and it, it is something they engage with. There's there's no possible way someone could find uh, hadith boring. Abdul, I wanted to uh, ask you one other question, and I know that we're gonna we're gonna get into uh, some more current uh, some contemporary issues with hadith and and and. Uh, maybe also get into a re- the recent article that that you have written, but one other question I had, and this is something that comes up a lot. And by the way, this comes up from both religious people and and maybe non-practicing. So people will come to you and look at hadith. You know, we've been talking about this ancient snapshots, uh, things from a a time that we're no longer familiar with. But other people will come and say, okay, the muhaddithun of the past, the the hadith giants of this ummah. They've done the heavy lifting, and I think we all agree with that. They've no no doubt. Um, I remember being at Hajj years ago, and um, on the day of Arafat, the 
our speaker was Sheikh Abdubar Yahya, one of the Al Maghrib Institute teachers. And he, he was talking about what a legacy Imam Bukhari and Imam Muslim left that when we see their name next to a narration, everyone's heart is at ease. They know that, you know, so much uh, meticulous work and, and labor was put in by them that essentially they, they, they serviced the ummah for centuries to come, really forever, where, you know, we have such a comfort. So to go to this notion that, you know, the Hadith scholars of the past did the heavy lifting, which, which again, we agree with. But then the second part of that is, so since the heavy lifting has been done in terms of grading or commentary, nowadays we don't really need this obsession with Hadith, this laser focus on Hadith. We, we, you know, we kind of have everything. We have the tools in the toolbox. And why are we really so worried and so obsessed with it? Um, I'd like to know how you would respond to that or, or what sort of feedback you would give to that sort of idea. So this is uh, also really good. Uh, by the way, you mentioned Sheikh Abdul-Bari Yahya. Um, and Sheikh Abdul-Bari Yahya, whenever I've, I've, I've been around him, um, you know, even as like a, you know, a teenager sitting in his classes, you know, when he would give Al-Maghrib classes, I have always felt that he really values Hadith. Um, so much respect for him. Um, uh, now, for this, uh, this is actually, once I initially got, you know, excited about Hadith, I, I, I think I got kind of dejected because it seemed to me that everything's already been done. So, you know, Al-Bukhari's already written his Sahih. You know, and Muslims already done his Sahih, and Abu Dawood has done his Sunan. What, 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 what? I mean, what's left? And I mean, even now, I mean, uh, Sheikh Al Bani, he, you know, did a lot of work. What's What's left after the work he's done? And and this is one of the the first things I had. Uh, I, I asked my dad. I'm like, so is is everything done? Is there anything left for people to do? Uh, and my dad told me. I I forgot everything he said, but. What he told me at the time was, of course, and there's still people doing work today. Do you think so and so and so and so and so and so are wasting their time? No, they're you know they're going back to manuscripts. They're they're you know publishing books. They're they're providing critical editions. They're grading a hadith. So, um, what I would say is that there is a lot of work, even though. Yes, the work has been, to an extent, done. The work also, to an extent, has not been done. Because every single time period has its unique challenges. And just as fiqh, Islamic law, deals with nawazil, new, new issues that come about, hadith, also deals with nawazin. There's new issues, new challenges. And uh, so this requires the ability to, to critically interact and engage with hadith literature. Um, you know, certain issues weren't issues before. Um, and at the same time, things that were, you know, issues back then um, might not be issues now. So, yes... A person can, you know, figure out already what's authentic from what from what's not authentic, based on works that have already been written. However, 
in terms of strengthening what we already know to be true, there's a lot of work that can be done here. Um, and that is a virtue in and of itself. And the muhaddithun of their time, Imam Muslim, for example, he did his job and did it well. He excelled at it based on the challenges of his time with hadith skeptics in his time, which is right, which is why he wrote the Tamiz. So our job is to not simply imitate, but our job is to critically engage and replicate the spirit of what they have done. So Imam Muslim during his time, the idea of compiling a sahih was revolutionary. I mean, it was not, it's not like the idea everyone had thought of it before. No, it was, it was relatively revolutionary. Imam At-Tirmidhi, his idea of a jama' and what he provided was also relatively re revolutionary. Um, let's go even uh, further in the past. Imam Malik, what he did was revolutionary. I mean, before him, um, th there wasn't topically arranged um, with chapter headings and whatnot, uh, books of hadith. It was simply either a book about one subject or just all a hadith of different topics put together without any, any proper ordering. So we look at in the past and sometimes we forget that what they were doing was revolutionary for their time. So what we have to do is, I mean, look, look, look at these attacks on Abu Hurairah. A lot of the information already exists, but sometimes it needs to be presented a better information. Plus, there are so many reasons why, for example, we know Abu Huraira is, is, is honest and trustworthy and even he's a Sahabi, it goes without saying. But only some of those reasons have been touched upon. So, you know, a, a later person can come and, 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 and bring up new reasons. I think that, you know, in, in, the, in the article I wrote, some of the points uh, that I brought up or several of them were fairly unique to that article that they're not usually talked about and, not, and, and brought up in other places. And one of the reasons for the Zidni course that I decided to teach Ilham al-Murith, even though the, it's, a, it's a contemporary book, I believe the author died in the 90s. Um, uh, the, the, one of the reasons why I chose to do that is to kind of refute this idea and say, hey, he, here's something an author wrote in the 90s. Um, and this is what a, a unique, good contribution to the field can look like. Allah Adam. So essentially, you'd say the secret behind making hadith great again is just making it relevant to where we're at today. There's so many of the issues that we are dealing with that can be addressed by hadith. Yeah. Well, now I'm going to, you mentioned those people who attack Abu Hurairah and I'm going to dive into the thorniest part of our discussion, I think. Um, so you did write for us, for MuslimMatters.org, mashallah, an article titled In Defense of Abu Hurairah and that came about 
um, in large part due to a very uh, <laughs> vociferous online kerfuffle undermining the integrity of Abu Huraira for a lot of people who saw this online they were very shocked by this um, a feminist progressive academic had a ridiculous tweet about it uh, and I think she was citing from Khad Abu Fadl's book and it turned into a whole online war but for those who aren't as familiar with the history of people attacking Abu Huraira and through that attacking Hadith can you just give a quick summary background of that and then we'll go into why these issues keep coming up repeatedly yeah so i mean um abu huraira uh, you know um he was subject to criticism by some you know jahmi heretics um and that was quickly squashed um because it was was pretty stupid (laughs) you know what i mean um and uh, since then, you have mainly the same talking points that are brought up by original, you know, Jahmi heretics, in addition to Shi'i heretics. And every now and then, you know, someone decides to, uh, you know, be a reviver <laughs> of this issue. And I, the last reviver of it, I think, was uh, Mahmoud Abu Raya from Egypt. And when he wrote his book, he wrote a couple books, but, um, you know, attacking Abu Huraira. Uh, he attacked Hadith in general, but also specifically Abu Huraira. And a lot of scholars wrote replies to it. And, and, and they're really good, by the way. Um, you have Sheikh Mustafa Sibai who was, I believe, the head of the Syrian branch of the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, he wrote a, uh, a book on the topic. Um, and that is, since he wrote it, um, it's still considered one of the best books on the topic. And I, it's actually been translated into English. I think it's called A Sunnah wa Makanatuha fi Tashriya. And it's also a textbook at many universities. Um, Abdurrahman al-Mu'allim al-Yamani, um, who was a Yemeni uh, librarian at the, uh, the the Yemeni librarian in the uh, Meccan Haram, who lived in India as well. He wrote uh, a book, Al-Anwar Al-Kashifa, which is a really good book. Um, from Syria, Dr. Muhammad Ajaj Al-Khatib, he also wrote a book. He wrote, he wrote a, 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 I believe, a thesis that was slightly related to the topic and then he wrote a specific book and um that was also very good he actually died i, I don't know if any of you guys are aware of uh, of who he is but he actually died in america recently i think in the last few years passed away um i think in georgia um and uh there's also where iraqi who wrote extensively on it and they all have really really good contributions um, and everyone that has written bad about Abu Huraira in modern times, including Khalid Abu Fadl, um, including, uh, I think the, the fellow's name is Taha Jabir Alwani. I don't know if, if, if I'm saying his na- name correctly. That, that name rings a bell. Not for me, but uh, that's because I'm mostly familiar with the progressive circles. 
Um, but continue. So, yeah. So all of them, in reality, one way or another, they simply go back to Abu Rayya. And, 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 and it's just a repetition of the same things. Oh, Omar prevented Abu Huraira. Oh, Aisha said about Abu Huraira. Um, every, every little, little, little thing that's already been said, it's just a repetition. And what is offensive, I think, to them about the hadith of Abu Huraira is the fact that Abu Huraira's hadith uh, so so, there, so there's this. I heard a clip of, of of Dr. Sherman Jackson. He was saying something like, "Why don't we read the Quran?" He said, "Because it hurts. We open it, and it's talking about us, and it hurts to read it." He said something like that, and I thought it was great. So for Abu Huraira, Abu Huraira's hadith are really relevant. And if you have a sickness in your heart, his hadith will not sit well with you. Genuinely, like. I, I, I like I don't want to sound like I'm I'm overexcited, but if if you have a sickness in your heart, you will not like his hadith because his hadith are specific, relevant, and to the point. And <clears throat> what's even more interesting is that there's a hadith, right, that they dislike of Abu Huraira. Had Abu Huraira not transmitted it, the principles of the Sharia would have dictated. That this be the case. Could you elaborate on that a little bit more? Like, what do you mean by that? So, for example, we have general principles in the Sharia, and we have other texts, and we have um, uh, the idea of qiyas. Even if there's a specific text that doesn't exist on an issue, we can come up with an idea of what the Sharia, what Allah wants from us on a given issue based on what we have. I mean, look at, we can give an example of, uh, of uh, there's a hadith about fasting, how a woman cannot fast for husband's present except with his permission. If this hadith did not exist, the principles of the Sharia would have, di- would have, would have dictated that this be true. And in this, there's actually something special to know, and I uh, that I wanted to highlight, um, uh, which is, and I should have highlighted this in the article, and I didn't, and this is it was because I only fully was developing the idea after I wrote, wrote the article. Just means you need to write another article for us, eh? <laughs> so, essentially, we have Sahaba, you know, that have a hadith. There's no other Sahabi that might transmit that given hadith. Does this mean that those Sahaba, other Sahaba that don't have this hadith, they simply are not guided on this issue? No, it doesn't mean that. Because many times you'll find a Sahabi will say something based on their knowledge of the Sharia, and it will correspond to something that actually another Sahabi has heard from the Prophet. Even though the first Sahabi, he said it simply based on his knowledge of the Sharia. And an example of this is uh, from Ibn Mas'ud, where he says uh, that uh, there's two things. One that the Prophet said and one I said. The, I heard the Prophet said him say that whoever, whoever dies uh, uh, committing shirk, he'll go to hell. Right? 
And then he said, I heard the Prophet say this. And I say from myself, whoever dies and does not commit shirk, he'll go to Jannah. Tayyib, he did not hear the second part from the Prophet. And he said it based on his knowledge of the Sharia. And yet we have another Sahabi that literally heard those exact words from the Prophet. And that same idea that Ibn Mas'ud had not heard from the Prophet, he simply said because of his knowledge of the Sharia, other Sahaba heard it from the Prophet. And so, for example, with the Ahadith of Abu Hurairah, there, what there needs to be done is an actual study of these Ahadith. And I'm sure people have done it, have done studies on certain Ahadith, but I'm not sure if it's been exhausted. The Ahadith that only Abu Hurairah has, they're unique to him. So, Abdullah, one, one thing I just want to say, I know here, Sister Zainab and you are having an exchange on some of the uh, progressive attacks and the, the contemporary uh, criticisms. But I just wanted to say one thing and bring back to this topic. We also have to assume sometimes that these critics who are attacking Hadith, who are attacking Abu Hurairah, anhu, are attacking in good faith. And and what I mean by that, this side, the, the progressives, the modernists, they oftentimes portray themselves as you know, very intellectual and very, you know, they, they look at arguments in a nuanced way. But a lot of times what I've seen is they'll, they'll, they're basically like kind of drive-by bomb throwers. They'll attack Abu Hurairah anhu when you try to engage them and actually say, okay, where is this attack coming from? Are you regurgitating, uh, you know, old Shia attacks or these old uh, well-known modernist attacks? They'll, they'll usually disappear. And I'm, I'm not trying to get into specifics on that. But one thing I've also noticed, um, and I'm old enough to remember, a lot of this attacks on Abu Hurairah and on Hadith itself, uh, not to say she's the only one, but uh, one of the prominent voices about 20, 20 years, 25 years ago was uh, Amina Wudud, who, uh, for people listening, she describes herself as the lady imam, and she's the same one who's uh, you know said many blasphemous things about uh, Ibrahim salam about it, and these things are well documented. Most of her movement remains fringe. It hasn't really picked up amongst traditional Muslims, whether, you know, whatever from the madhab or school of thought or from the Ahlul Hadith or, or other side. It really never took off. But again, we, 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 we would like to think that these critics argue in good faith and they're open to the truth. But a lot of times it seems that progressives and Shia are only regurgitating each other's talking points where they do an attack. And then when you try to engage them in good faith, they disappear. And again, I would like Sister Zainab and you uh, may, maybe to comment on that. Maybe maybe I'm wrong, but from a distance, that's what I've usually seen about this crowd. Okay, I want to jump in uh, just before you, Abdullah, just to kind of lay the groundwork for some listeners tonight who might not be familiar with what we're talking about, in particular, uh, the progressives. So I've had the uh, unfortunate displeasure of reading quite a few progressive works, Amina Wadud, Fatima Mernissi. And I would say even before Amina Wadud, it was Fatima Mernissi who really introduced these vicious attacks against Abu Huraira radiallahu an, especially. Uh, she also attacks Umar radiallahu an in uh, one of her other books as well. Um, and it all comes from a place of blaming it all on misogyny and saying that the hadith are corrupted by misogyny and they show how much hatred that the Sahaba had for women. And she will bring in all kinds of things and will presumably she's citing like quote unquote traditional sources or what seems to be traditional sources. And up till now, actually, I have yet to see um, anyone like a hadith scholar, for example, be able to pinpoint 
the arguments she's making and just call it out for the rubbish that it is. And unfortunately, because so many conservative traditional Muslims, again, in the, in the English sphere, they're not necessarily familiar with these books. They're not familiar with these arguments. Um, but these books are used as textbooks in many universities for Islamic studies classes, um, for anything related to Muslim women. These books are literally standard reading. And so you have a lot of people, men and women alike, who go into these secular institutions and they take Islamic studies courses and classes and they read these books and they're like, oh my God, whoa, hadith is all a scam. Oh, it was used to undermine women. Oh, hijab is an invention of men because men hated women being able to walk around. Oh, Abu Huraira really hated women and they will give a laundry list of different things. And for those of us who are more familiar with the tradition and who understand that many of Abu Huraira's narrations of uh, specifically related to women, as you brought up in your article on Muslim Matters, were actually upholding the rights of women and actually in defense of women in a lot of ways. And the ways that the progressives try to spin uh, Abu Huraira and Umar and other uh, hadith narrators as being misogynistic and, you know, hadith are just used to weaponize, um, you know, the deen against women, it comes from a place of not at all knowing the difference between authentic narrations and fabricated narrations or weak narrations. It comes from a place of not understanding anything about the sciences of hadith or the systems of hadith and how it works. It also doesn't have, they don't have any idea or understanding of contextualization of a hadith, a narration um, that maybe uh, came about from earlier days of Islam and the rulings were later abrogated or where there was like simple human misunderstanding um, you know, there's a very popular, unfortunately now, um, this Sophia Rahman who wrote a thesis on uh, the Aisha Radulana's corrective of male companions. And I believe I spoke to you about this offline and you'd pointed out that, well, actually most of the narrations being discussed weren't even authentic to begin with. Um, so this is kind of where we're coming from and what I would like readers to really be aware of that when these progressives are throwing these attacks out and again, it Anyone from Amina Wadud to Fatima Mernissi to Khalid Abu Fadl to Sofia Rahman to whoever else is out there just pushing this ridiculous agenda of undermining hadith or denying a hadith, um, I would not say that they have good faith. Uh, I would say that unfortunately a lot of the people who read their works who don't have any understanding of the background of hadith, they're coming from a place from a place of pain or ignorance or they were taught you know, certain cultural understandings that are not actually accurate um, from an Islamic perspective. And they're complete, they are conflating what they were exposed to uh, culturally or within their homes um, or at the hands of somebody who really just didn't know any better uh, with this whole system that's been laid out for them and no understanding of the realities and the nuances and the complexities that actually exist. Um, so take it away, Abdullah. I don't really have much to say on it uh, after all that, but I mean, Al-Mu'allimi al-Yamani kind of points out to this this, this issue in, in his uh, Al-Anwar al-Kashifa. And he says something that I think is really profound. That some people, yes, they may come from a sincere place. And by sincere place, what is he referring to? He's referring to them actually wanting to be Muslims and trying to defend what they think Islam is. So 
from that angle, they can come from a sincere place. Yet, when they discuss these topics, they err in it. They make huge blunders and mistakes. And Allah does not guide them to the truth and does not facilitate um, for them following the truth. And Al-Mu'allimi goes on and says, because they don't necessarily deserve the truth, certain people. Why? Because if you look into the reality of a lot of those that attack Abu Hurairah or Hadith, even if they might be actually thinking they're defending Islam, at the very least, they have in their heart, they have certain biases that they've listened to. They are, they are ready to accept what a kafir says about a sahabi, which is, a, is genuinely a, a spiritual and a theological problem that has to be dealt with. Um, they have, you know, this glorification of things that are un-Islamic. So even if they might be genuinely trying to defend Islam, due to the sicknesses that they have in their heart, glorifying what is not Islamic, having biases, be ready, be, be, being, ready, uh, being ready to slander a Sahabi without good evidence, because of this, Allah doesn't allow for them or doesn't guide them to uh, follow the truth on this matter. And I think that this was genuinely beautifully put by Muhammad. This is what he says in the beginning of Al-Anwar al-Kashif when discussing the attacks of the Muhammad. No, thank you for uh, for sharing that, Abdullah, and, and the, the exchange here with, with Sister Zainab. Abdullah, we're kind of hitting um, the home stretch here for the listeners we uh, gen- generally try to keep our uh, episodes about an hour and sometimes we go over and that's okay. So I do have a couple other questions here for Abdullah and I'm going to try to go through them quickly but at the same time um, get some benefit from having him here. Abdullah, one uh, item moving to a, another topic is sometimes we find that there's wisdoms or statements that contain wisdom in them and they're uh, incorrectly known through generations as hadith. Uh, I know one of these, uh, which is very popular, for example, is to seek knowledge even in China. And uh, sometimes, just anecdotally speaking from an experience in my own life, is some guys studied this or learned this and they're in high school, and then maybe they'll go tell some elders or some other people who, who maybe have you know been practicing their whole life, but they, they're just not familiar with, with the Hadith. And, and they'll say, no, it is a Hadith. And then when you'll say, no, we, we just learned it is. And, and obviously there should be a manner when talking to people and, a, and a, a wisdom in how you deal with people. People will get emotional and say things like, do you know all the statements of the Messenger of Allah? Or do you know all the Hadith that are out there? Like, because obviously it becomes a, at that point a more of an emotional issue. But I wanted to go back to the base. Uh, how, how important is it to clarify what are wisdoms versus actual authentic hadith? Because sometimes people will take certain statements that are good statements, but they'll attribute that them to the Prophet ﷺ, when in reality they're, they're, they're wisdoms or they're, they're good sayings, but they, they might not actually be hadith. So um, I, this, is a, this is a really good one as well, um, because there, there are several different aspects to this question. Number one, you've got the sometimes people say something that's inauthentic and what 
is not authentic, right, becomes popular, even though there's actually something that the prophet has actually said about this. So one of the bad effects of weak or, you know, uh, incorrect or fabricated hadith is what is true on the matter might get lost. And instead, what people know is something that might not be correct. Um, the I, I think this goes back to the spirit of hadith, right? Not everything that is true has been said by the prophet. Other people other than the prophet also can have wisdoms. And part of what it means, you know, to be a hadith is be a Muslim in general is that we want to know what this prophet specifically said. Even if it doesn't, you know, knowing something that's wise and true is nice, but we want to know the wise and true things that the prophet said. And, and that's important. And how, I think the last thing I would say is how do we expect people to, non-Muslims to take us seriously as Muslims? If we're trying to, yeah, convert to Islam, we have the truth, but we really don't actually have a truth value. Anything that's good, we're willing to say that, yeah, yeah the prophet said it. So we claim to be following the truth, but really there is no truth value. So that's just my, my two cents. No, uh, thank you for that, Abdullah. I, I have one, uh, it's more of a personal question for you, and I know it's it's never an easy one to answer. <laughs> But I'd like to ask this to any Hadith enthusiast or student of Hadith or someone who invests their life or their uh, time in, in studying and teaching Hadith. When you think of the Muhaddatun of the past, and again, I know this is not an easy question, uh, are there one or two that, that really kind of stand out to you as personal favorites? And again, this is not to say there's so many giants, so many amazing scholars of Hadith, but so maybe favorite isn't even the right word, but one or two that really you you feel connected to or you really feel like man i really appreciate and, and think of these uh scholars often yeah so uh, there there's a bunch I'll, I'll just i'll just you know mention a bunch of names uh imam muslim ibn hajjaj love the guy huge fan um i think um i i i admire him for what he tried to be and what he tried to do and what he means for hadith after him he changed hadith um i uh, i mean before him i'm a huge fan of sufiana thawri um uh, gosh there's so many people one person that i think is undervalued as a muhaddith is ibn taymiyyah even though he comes way after i i like to describe ibn taymiyyah i say he's the muhaddith's muhaddith he's the he, he's the type of guy he's like you know we know we're correct as hadithists but let me explain why we're correct right um, huge fan of, of when Ibn Taymiyyah has his hadith observations and his hadith moments. Um, and he's, I think, sometimes undervalued in that regard. Um, alam. Uh, so, I mean, uh, Abu Hatim al-Razi, uh, great, uh, huge fan. Uh, Salih Jazara, Muhammad ibn Muslim ibn Wara. Um, some of the names are more popular than others, but, you know, those those people... Really, uh, I think they, they, for me, they are a wide enough array to show what Hadith science is. No, absolutely. And uh, turning the page on that, um, you mentioned, you've mentioned many of these names earlier, but, uh, you know, in the, in, in, in the West here in North America, we have had many Hadith scholars and specialists both reside in the U.S. and Canada or visit 
uh, we mentioned your father, Dr. Muhammad al-Jabali, uh, Dr. Soheb Hassan used to visit many times. Uh, you had some of the scholars of Hadith from Egypt, like Abu Maqsud al-Afifi and others. But I wanted to ask you, who are some contemporary leading authorities that are known for uh, checking, teaching, uh, reviving the interest in Hadith today, whether they're living in the Muslim world in the East or, or living in the West? Who would some of the current people be who you look to kind of as as uh, mentors or as uh, uh, inspiration or, mo- or motivation? Uh, so uh, these, this is also a great one. I could go on forever about this. So there is a few. Uh, number one, Abu Ishaq al-Huwaini, uh, currently living in Qatar. The man is a legend, genuinely a legend. Um, his, his The way he explains... I listened to a, a series of cassette tapes that my dad had, had of him, um, you know, probably 12 years, 10 years ago now. And um, uh, actually, it could be 12 years ago by now. And I still remember things he said in them. He, he's inspired by Hadith and he inspires others. Um, you have Abu Hassan al-Ma'ribi, um, who also... He said something that 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 I it, it it kind of made some things a lot of things in hadith click for me. Someone asked him, a professor asked Abu Hassan al-Ma'ribi a question. He said, "How do I get good in hadith?" Abu Hassan told him. He said, "Accompany and study with someone who understands yafqah, understands hadith." And then he paused and then he says, "I'm not telling you that you need you have to accompany a muhaddith." scholar of hadith i say accompany someone that understands hadith and when he said that you know what it makes it clear is that there's a difference between technically knowing terms versus someone who understands the philosophy of it um you have in america currently residing one of the greatest scholars of hadith in the world who is sheikh talaq abadullah he lives in minnesota and he is highly impressive um uh, he has a sophisticated understanding of of uh, of hadith. I I've I I read his um, my first introduction to his works was like 2013, and uh, those changed the way I view hadith from his book Al Naqd Al Banat Hadith Asma, and uh, Sheikh Salman Ibn Nasr is the one who actually introduced me to him, um, like his books, and I had the pleasure of meeting him last year. And we studied a text with him in Minnesota, and uh, it was it was awesome. It was everything that one would expect and more. He's a great guy, um, huge fan. Um, and yeah, and then there's uh, Sheikh Abdullah Saad in in uh, Saudi Arabia. Also, great stuff. I try to uh, regularly attend when he has uh, online, you know, classes live that he streams. So. Um, there's a lot of people, but those are the ones that come to mind. Uh, they're just, I think, at you know the top of the field. They're inspirational, um, and they really, when a person hears them, they 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 understand that hadith it has its respect and it has a status. Alam. No, alhamdulillah, that's that's really great and and really good for myself and and the listeners to hear about uh, all these leading authorities around the world. Um, folks who are listening, brothers and sisters, and uh, any of our non-Muslim guests, this is probably going to be the last show before we st- uh, for the Muslim Matters Man to Man podcast 
before we start focusing on Ramadan prep, most of the the episodes that you'll see released in um, in March will be focused on and around topics related to Ramadan. Um, hey, Abdullah, really appreciate you joining us today. And uh, I, I would like to have you back in the future. I know you're busy in some works. You're going to be teaching some classes and would definitely like to see you back in the future. Uh, Jazakallah khair for um, being on the show today. And on behalf of myself and Sister Zainab bint Yunus, uh, I wanted to thank you and uh, brothers and sisters, inshallah, uh, we'll be back on uh, in the future with more topics. Jazakumullah khairan. It was a pleasure to be here and uh, I hope to be on in the future. Great. Asalaamu Alaikum. Hey everyone, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and follow us online on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram on our handle Muslim Matters. And check out our site daily at muslimmatters.org. Thanks for listening and we'll see you in the next one, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu.